0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christoph Dinec, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Luis Lobo Guerrero, Professor of History and Theory of International Relations at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. We're talking about his new book, Mapping, Connectivity, and the Making of European Empires, a volume of essays he edited with Laura Lopresti and Felipe Dos Reis. Professor Lobo Guerrero's work is in post-structuralist thought, history of early modern science, historical epistemology, and geopolitics, including topics of biopolitics and security and the big questions of globality and connectivity. His, his books include Ensuring Life, Value, Security, and Risk in 2016, Ensuring War, Sovereignty, Security, and Risk uh, 2013, and Ensuring Security, Biopolitics, Security, and Risk in 2012. And then these two edited volumes, Mapping, Connectivity, and the Making of European Empires, That's the book we are talking about today, and one before it, Imaginaries of Connectivity, The Creation of Novel Spaces of Governance, uh, which we talked about last time we did this podcast together, and I will put the link to that discussion in the blog notes below. So together, these two are part of a, a trilogy that's still in progress. So hi, Luis, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Christoph.
1: Thank you very much for
0: having me again. Please, please tell us about how this exciting project started. Tell us about the new book and also give us the big picture for the trilogy. Well,
1: this this project comes out of uh, a deeper concern from, from for quite a while ago uh, to understand how is it that we come to create spaces of governance. Uh, spaces of governance are not abstract, they're very concrete spaces through which you do things Uh, We don't speak here about uh, uh, philosophical spaces. We talk about very practical and physical spaces through which we do things. We navigate, we govern, uh, we transit, uh, we organize things, we dispose of things. But those need to be created. And, and, And the idea with this book was to put together this very problematic idea of empire together with the creation of space, and see what would come out of that. And and the idea was to look at that uh, through cartography. And there's there's quite an interest in cartography these days. And cartography, uh, especially within the the wider move of critical cartographic studies, uh, which started in the 80s, uh, there's so much to explore there. So, we used uh, maps, cartography in this case, or, or practices of mapping, of which cartography is one, uh, as an empirical space to interrogate this relationship between empire making and uh, uh, this idea of European empire, which is uh, actually uh, not a sorted out issue, it's not solved. It's it's very interesting because of that. So I decided to uh, start exploring this and gather a small team, we created a, a research group um, and uh, we got some uh, opportunities to meet in different very exciting places in Rapallo, in Italy, uh, just where Nietzsche was writing. Uh, we also had the chance to meet uh, close to Copenhagen, um, and, uh, and we had fantastic conversations there. And lately we, we met at uh, conferences of the European Studies Association. And what we managed to do then was to conform, uh, constitute a team of five people. Uh, thinking about different imperial orders, all European, in different historical moments, and then gather our thoughts around how can we make sense of this idea of European empire through cartography, but focusing on what we are calling a connectivity approach, which is what uh, puts together, uh, holds together these three volumes of the trilogy. And I'm going to say uh, something about that. Uh, in a moment. So th- this was the, 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 the idea of, uh, of the project. Now the big picture for the trilogy is, again, a very long-standing concern with how is it that we come to think about the making of spaces, the making of spaces of governance. And I designed this trilogy uh, in the way that the first volume of which we spoke uh, focuses on, on the problem of imaginaries of connectivity. And that whole idea of imaginings of con- connectivity is incredibly rich. It's getting some traction. People are talking about it. The second one has to do with a particular imaginary of connectivity and governance, which is that of an idea or ideas of empire. And the, th- the third one is the, right. the, the project we're starting, uh, we're working on at the moment. The third volume has to do with uh, navigation as a practice of making spaces. So it's going to be called uh, navigation, connectivity, and the opening up of spaces of governance. And uh, for that, we're uh, putting together a fantastic research group. uh, And hopefully once it's uh, finished, we'll have
0: another blog about it. That would be terrific, and I will certainly love to ask you about it when that, when the third one is finished. I understand what um, empire is, and I understand what uh, cartography is, but could, uh, but you also emphasize this connectivity. How does this approach uh, serve you? How does it help you think about these topics?
1: Well, this idea of uh, of connectivity, it's actually a very simple one, that's that's where in where where its beauty lies. That it's so simple, it, it basically uh, wants to understand not that things are connected, we can see that, we can, we can experience how things are connected, but what we really think about is under which terms are things connected, and how do those terms change over time, and what makes them possible in a very specific historical moment. So uh, uh, j- just to give you a, a, a contemporary uh, parallel, uh, with uh, uh, internet connectivity. Not long ago, when the internet started, we were relying on uh, copper cables. And uh, in cities over the world, uh, those copper cables uh, start getting old and the speeds that they can carry are not as good as expected. They start to be changed uh, into uh, optic fiber, for example. A, it allows for for, for much... Uh, bigger bandwidth and that kind of stuff, uh, and then you set the new infrastructure. But whereas in both cases you had internet as an effect, as a connectivity effect of linking together a mi- uh, millions of computers around the world, what you now have is, of course, an, an internet, but it's a different kind of internet. It's a different connectivity effect, which is much quicker, much richer, uh, uh, much wider. And then the terms under which, let's say the older internet, uh, was made possible are different from the terms under which the current internet is, is happening now. Now, the kind of questions that we ask are very simple. The first one is, what is being connected? When we talk about a European empire uh, and we look at it through cartograph- so through mapping practices, uh, what is it that those maps, part of which are cartography, uh are trying to connect? What is it that is sought to be connected through those maps? The second question is, under which terms are those connections being made possible? So what kind of uh, instruments are required? What kind of knowledges, beliefs, practices, uh, attitudes uh, have to be in place for those connections to be possible? And the third question, which is also very important, is to what effect in, in our particular case of this book, we're asking, to what geopolitical effect? So the geopolitical ha- effect here is a particular idea of empire. But one of the things that we demonstrate is the, in, in the book is that this idea of empire, which we really do not know what it's about in the general, but once we start zooming in and we start realizing the practices and the knowledges through which this uh, comes into place, we realize that empire has always been an aspiration Rather than a, a, a done deal, so uh, when we talk about the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the um, whichever empire, these were always aspirations. They were never concrete uh, uh, ideas. We speak about them ex post facto uh, as an institution. Uh, perhaps in the nineteenth century, in particular, with the British Empire, that's slightly different. But uh, earlier than that, we talk about imperial aspirations, and this is this is very interesting because we tend to use anachronistically terms such as empire to refer to things that happened in the past. Uh, But the configurations of space, order, uh, power that were taking place there might deserve a slightly different label. Now, we're doing the anachronistic exercise here. We're calling them empire in order to try to understand how these things came into being in terms of spaces of governance and territorial spaces in particular um, but we try to look at this from a connectivity approach. Now, this is slightly different from uh, doing political history or trying to do the history of empires. What we're trying to look at here is what are those empires an aspiration of in relation to what they sought to connect under which terms and to what, which effect.
0: So does this mean if I'm the king of Spain, I'm trying to imagine that my will is being carried out in New Spain out of the way i hoping it's... Or I'm the king of Denmark and, and I hope that what I say is happening in Greenland and these maps help me imagine that my servants are doing what I wish? Or is that, is that what connectivity is? Rather than they go off into outer space and I have no idea what's going on over there?
1: But this is the beauty of maps, ultimately. Uh, rarely maps... Rarely are maps used really to go and discover. You never use a map to go and discover. You just go and discover and then map it out. And by mapping it out... You're trying to stabilize that which was unknown uh, and uncertain, and you start to define it through a map. You start giving it some shape or form uh, through which you can govern. It's the old governance dictum. You can only govern what you can define. In mapping is a practice of defining an object of governance, ultimately. So if you're the king of Denmark and you start uh, having expeditions going somewhere, Uh, as as, uh, the chapter of uh, Iepes Transburgs does, uh, you start finding that actually what you thought was out there was slightly different. And you start detailing it in a particular way, and then you create an object of governance, which we call space. In In the case of the king of Spain... Which is very controversial because it was really never the king of Spain as such. It was was the king of Castile, the uh, Aragon, and 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 it was a king of different kingdoms. Uh, Then what you end up doing is that you use cartography in a very centralized form in order in order to try to strategize your uh, your 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 practices of. Uh, exploration in conquest so in the case of Spain for example there was this Padrón Real Uh, we spoke about that uh, uh, last time Uh, this kind of central map that you start creating to update everything that was being found and uh, it was like an inventory of the spaces that uh, had been detailed Uh, but in reality mariners couldn't use these maps they were useless for that but they were very useful for planning purposes at the center say at the Palace of El Escorial in terms of uh, um, uh, Philip II, or they were very useful for diplomatic purposes. You summoned ambassadors or you sent an embassy to another kingdom and you showed a map. And by showing a map, you were trying to colonize the imagination or conquer the imagination of the viewers in terms that they could understand that were intelligible to them and show them that from here onwards this belongs to the crown of Castile, Aragón, and whatever, or from here onwards it belongs to Portugal, or from there onwards this is uh, a space for dispute, as it happened in, in the North Atlantic, for example, after after um, um, uh, several treaties that were, were signed in the, in the late 16th century. So maps are instruments for governance but they are actually sites through which you experiment with uh, the making of space. So they are kind of live instruments. That's the beauty of those maps. So when we go and look at maps, even contemporary maps, they're not giving us really uh, a, um, a state of affairs. They don't necessarily detail a status quo, an established order. What they do is that they provide us with elements from which to think about what that established order could be or was expected to be. So it's an unfinished project. If I take a map of the 16th century, which are the maps that I work with, uh, they never tell me a settled story. In fact, they liberate the stories that I had uh, anticipated they would tell me. And that's why they are so interesting instruments from which to conduct uh, investigations of this kind.
0: Well, we will talk more about Spain in just a moment, or so-called Spain, Uh, but first I should introduce that this is an edited volume with uh, six authors and three editors, and uh, you discuss not only the early modern Spanish empire, but also British North America with your colleagues, Um, uh, 19th century Germany, France's uh, French possessions in Syria, Denmark and Greenland, and uh, an Italian fascist empire. Uh, but you wrote the first two chapters and also the preface, so about of the about a third of the the entirety of this book is is your work and yours are, are, entire, are, are entitled um, "Poseidonians and the Tragedy of Mapping European Empires," then the first chapter "Mapping and the Making of Imperial European Connectivity." and mapping and the invention of early Spanish empire with Spanish being in quotation marks, or I think the British say inverted commons. Um, and <laughs> what, and I think you just told me why maps are the tools of, of empires. And you said that they're aspirational. And is that because they're claiming things, naming things, marking borders that may or may not be where the, the monarch wishes them to be and taxing people he's hoping will pay?
1: Yeah. Uh... Partly that's the that's that's the idea, but that's I in the in the preface to the book which uh, uh, you mentioned Poseidonians and the tragedy of mapping European yeah, empires.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, tell us what is a Poseidonian.
1: <laughs> so uh, Poseidon is is known as the as the as the Greek god uh, of the season, but he's a vengeful figure, and he's trying to. To, to seek revenge on, on Odysseus uh, for having harmed his his uh, cyclops and so on and so forth is this idea that what, partly what defines uh, a particular group of people who move away uh, who venture away are the gods that they follow and it was known in in, in the Mediterranean that when People would find other people at sea, they would ask them, which gods do you follow? And if they followed uh, Poseidon, for instance, they were considered to be part of the the same, let's say, cultural family. But some of these colonies they established uh, became very remote, and the people there started adapting uh, to local cultures, and there was a synergy, uh, a syncretism of cultures. And eventually, they come to realize that once upon a time, they did follow Poseidon, but... uh, but it's a bit remote, and they, they reminisce, r- r- reminisce about uh, those old days, but they realize they're not quite Poseidonists anymore, uh, and still they want to be. It's, it's the idea of the lost motherland or fatherland uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, in a way. Now, what's very interesting with, with this idea of uh, mapping European empires is that what is European? It's a big question, Right. Uh, the, the, the whole idea of Europeanism or, or what a European nation is, country or nationality, is something that is more of an aspiration rather than anything else and gets defined through the encounter with other peoples. And it's mapping that encounter which paradoxically starts to define what the European is. So it's very interesting now in, in, in these times, of these intellectual times in which we live, where there's such prominence, for instance, of uh, decolonial theory and decolonial moves of pretty much everything, where they say, well, uh, there was an indigenous, and then the European came and did what it did. Well, I often wonder, but but there was no such thing as a European. It actually got constructed in the process of encountering. So that idea of the colonial is actually, uh, uh, sorry, that, that the European becomes a colonial construction, ultimately. And this is the tragedy that I, that I try to to, to, to to describe in a playful way in that uh, preface to the book, simply because what the subsequent chapters do, specifically with the, with the empires that we look at, is that they clearly demonstrate that this idea of empire was always an aspiration, and it was a Quixotic aspiration, if you wish. It really never came to be uh, possible in the way that they expected it to be, even if they try to show it in maps as having very clear borders. So let me give you a snippet about this, which uh, very few people know about. We talk about continents, right? And we talk about uh, five continents or however many we want to think of. And the, the idea of the early modern period is that we jump from having uh, three or four into having five, right? And so the, well, the fourth part was the Americas and then you, you talk about our, our Australasia and so on. But uh, this term, continent, is a word that started to be used only in the 16th century. So this is very telling because there's something quite particular in terms of our spatial, global spatial imaginary, that requires this term, continent, to define a mass of land Uh, what was it that we were mapping when we start talking about continents? What is it that is being contained or are we mapping what contains the container? Or are we mapping the imaginaries of those who think in terms of containers and contained? And that's the fascinating part about uh, uh, the the modern period that all these categories of thought really uh, open widely And they are the subject of very intense imaginaries, what we call in this book, imaginaries of connectivities. So that's what I tried to do with this idea of the Poseidonians there in order to tease it out a little bit. And I forgot what was your second question just now.
0: Um, It was, oh, whether they are means for uh, aspirations Aspirations of control. Whether you you have to put down on paper, it's inventory inventory your possessions if you can. Is the case. Yeah,
1: it's very interesting because you heard me say that we talk about mapping, of which cartography is one part. Because there are other forms of maps which are not necessarily cartographic representations. There. Uh, sailing itineraries for example uh, the sagas uh, that we speak of uh, uh, that are known in the north of Europe uh, with Vikings and so on and other perhaps,
0: perhaps the, uh, Ili- not the Iliad uh, the Odyssey itself with Ex- all those islands absolutely
1: yes and that's uh, actually is good you mention it because that is one of the oldest ways of mapping and uh, what what uh, uh, different, let's say, contemporary maps, and by contemporary I mean uh, modern maps from the 16th, 15th century onwards, what they do is that they start visually representing some of those spatial imaginaries that had been in place for a very long time. Even the Bible. You can go and read the Bible and imagine spaces, right? There was a very common genre in the, in the, in the late Middle Ages, which was uh, 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 travel narratives, right? And that would you could travel and you could experience different spaces just by reading this kind of things, Uh, and that's fascinating. But the kind of uh, uh, maps that start uh, becoming much more popular in the 16th century onwards is these maps, which are cartographic representations, which try to show things in order to show an inventory of uh, of. Of, of space, right? And you start labeling. So toponymia here is fascinating because how you call things uh, uh, has an impact on how you're going to understand them, of course. And uh, for instance, the, the the label of the Atlantic Ocean or uh, Atlantis uh, has uh, a particular understanding that comes from classical uh, times. And yet it's incredibly modern in the spatial representation, it starts to uh, uh, deploy. So we have all these kinds of things in maps that we can actually pose questions to because we see uh, a strange name in a map and rather than saying, okay, it's a cool name, we start wondering, what is that giving away? What is this alerting us off as an event in history that we can go and actually investigate? And it's, it's, it's a wonderful idea because when you investigate, you invest your passions, your interests, your, your, your style of thinking into making sense of what that thing is about. So just to give you a snippet about this, at the moment, I'm wondering very much so uh, about cardinality. Why is it we call the North-North and the East-East and the West and the South and so on? Why is it we use the term to orient, orient yourself, Right. Is it that we seek seeking the Orient? Well, we were at some time in history, in European history. But now we're in the, in the modern period, we're actually looking for the West. And we're looking for the North. How come? What makes that uh, uh, transit different? All those kinds of things we can explore through this kind of maps by posing the questions of connectivity that we try to do in this book.
0: One thing that jumped out to me uh, as you were speaking just now is um, two poems, and I'll, I'll say this very Quickly uh, uh, offered to the Emperor Charles V at his coronation in Bologna in 1529. One is by a, a Polish courtier who only speaks of Christendom, a guy named uh, Johannes Dantiscos. And one is by our Spanish courtier, Juan Ines de Sepúlveda, who not only speaks of Christendom, but starts to speak of Europe. And that's the first time I see Europe. And I think, like, well, of course he thinks in those terms now that I hear you explain it, because he's coming from Spain, which even though they're talking about an Ottoman contest and are not talking about the new world. He already thinks of Europe, which I don't think existed before the 16th century, as you just said.
1: I think that's right. And I'm very glad you, you bring this point because uh, that, that, that's a very, I mean, the, the, the genre here counts a lot. Why, why is this expressed in terms of poems, right? And it's it's a genre, which is attuned to a court system, right? The court would understand this, it it would be uh, uh, elegant to present it in such terms. Here we're talking about Spain, which, of course, uh, nowadays you you think about the the, uh, Spanish geopolitics and so on, and most people would uh, see it as something antiquated and so on. But we need to bear in mind that in the 16th century, uh, what we call Spain was at the forefront of geopolitical expansion. And this was, take the palace of El Escorial, built in in, in the second half of the 16th century. Uh, That was actually the command and control center of the biggest empire of the time. Uh, And uh, they were uh, fully attuned with what what was happening in, let's say, the West, in order to deal in the East, which was where, and, and in Europe, which was uh, where, where the crown was uh, uh, having its contested spaces. So it, we cannot separate the east from the west. Uh, they are part of a single whole, which I call the globe, really. Uh, and uh, and you get that represented in this kind of uh, genres, poems, and so on. So that's 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 quite quite crucial. It's there.
0: So let's talk about the first map that that you offer, and that is the map of Juan de la Cosa in 1500. Juan de la Cosa, you tell us, is the owner of the Santa Maria, which went, which was Columbus's flagship eight years al- earlier. And you uh, have a, a fascinating analysis of this map. Uh, for, for one thing, it puts West at the top. Oh, and I should tell to our listeners, the map is pictured in our book. But if you just Google Mapa Mundi or Juan de la Cosa, you'll find a, an enormous, you know, uh, Picture of it on Wikipedia that you can zoom in as closely as you wish and see in full color. So it's a nice. Uh, the internet helps, uh, but in this one, West is on top. And as you noticed earlier, uh, just now, that we used to say Orient, and in those medieval maps, the Mappa Mundi, the East was on top, where the sun always rose, and apparently Eden, the Garden of Eden, was, and certainly Columbus had that world world view. But here, the West is on top, and um, Jerusalem is no longer in the center. Tell us about this, this remarkable map that you uh, analyze and discuss.
1: Well, that's a map that I saw as a child in the in the Naval Museum of Madrid. It's been there. It's is the is their jewel, and it's in the center of it. They just uh, re digitalized it. But anyway, it's a large map. It's more or less the, I don't know the exact uh, measures, but taller than me, and it's uh, it's put on a flat table. So I had never imagined it standing in front of me. Uh, but I, I I took some 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 weeks off to do some research uh, a couple of years ago when I was in in Erfurt, in a very nice uh, uh, place in in, in the east of Germany. And it was late at night, and I I had printed this map very big, and I had put it on the wall, and I was just staring at it. And then suddenly, something just uh, shocked me. And I thought, it's absolutely clear to me what this map is doing. It's a giant cross. It's a Christian cross. And then the cross is actually uh, uh, organized by uh, the Tropic of Cancer. It's the the long transept of the cross. And what crosses it is actually the line of Tordesillas, which was the, the political claim that the Spanish were trying to make with that map, allegedly. Uh, it was a map uh, uh, commissioned by by um, uh, Bishop uh, Fonseca the archbishop the, the, the Bishop of Toledo basically the second person most important in the kingdom of Castile uh, and he was in charge of the Council of Indies at the time and he had commissioned that map uh, presumably for diplomatic purposes because you show it to people what would people recognize at the time and when I, I'm saying people here are mostly talking uh, about uh, court and uh, and nobles and ambassadors and so on, merchants, rich merchants. Well, the sign of the cross was something that would, they would certainly recognize there. And then I looked at it quite carefully and I looked at the uh, rose wind or wind rose. I don't know how you say it. Uh, it's a beautiful one, and I started looking at it with a magnifying glass. This was probably two in the morning or something, and I'm not a religious person, and then I see a Madonna appearing in front of me, a virgin and a child, and I was like, and I knew that Mariology at the time was starting to have a revival. So the study of uh, well the, the, the cult to Virgin Mary. And uh, the Pope of the time, that I found subsequently, uh, was a Dominican. And the Dominicans had been celebrating the, 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 the Feast of Virgin Mary for uh, a couple of centuries. But it was not a generally recognized feast in the church. Through this Pope it started. So this became a very, it was like... The trend of, of the theological trend of the time, and here you have it in the center of the map. Well, not the center, the center top in the middle, just where the, the head of Jesus would go in a, in a crucifix. There you have the the, 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 the rose went with the Madonna and child. And on the very top, where the typical Inri inscription would go, on the top of the, the, the transept uh, of, the, of the cross, you would find the figure of um, of St. Christopher which is the, the patron of uh, mariners and the patron of, of, uh, of travelers. Um, and it's this idea that you are protected in the process of moving away, uh, moving beyond exploring the frontier. Now, the, uh, what we call the American continent, which was not known as such yet, is painted in green. And green is the color of redemption uh, for the church. Uh, so this is a crusade through which you move west, which you put on the top of the map. Uh, You are protected uh, because it's a a form of a crusade. Uh, You have the blessing and the care of the Virgin Mary, uh, but you have a mission to go there. Now, this is, in our own terms, it's very difficult to see, but I can try to imagine, as a rich merchant or a diplomat at the time, I see that. Uh, the message is clear. Obviously, for me, that is propaganda, right? That's a map that's not showing how things are. Maps never intend to show how things are. They're they're specific uh, uh, representations of a desired order or an unexpected order. And um, that's what I find there. But that's a completely novel reading. In in fact, when I I, I went to speak about this to the people at the uh, Naval Museum in Madrid a couple of weeks ago... Uh, They were in big awe. (laughs) They were saying, actually, it makes sense, but nobody had seen it before. Why not? Well, we look at different things. The map surprises us in different ways, right? And that map uh, can be used to to explore so many other kinds of things. So basically, I'm trying to understand the uh, imaginary of connectivity that takes place within that map by trying to understand, if I may use the term here, the cosmologies, the worldview of those who are trying to map out something. And there is a great degree of speculation in that exercise. Of course, there is. But we need to venture into some form of speculative thinking in order to try to understand what those things could have been. And maybe we come to the conclusion that it's, uh, it's not very solid and then we move into other things. But anyway, this kind of worked for me in this, in this case.
0: Yeah, and the the third the CS line that you referred to is is not um, it's a line that's not too old at that point. I think it's from 1494, where the Pope divides the planet between Spain and Portugal, so they don't have to fight. They say, uh, and, and that's why so much of the western side of America speaks Spanish, and Brazil remains Portuguese. And you can tell it's a Spanish map because there's almost nothing left for the Portuguese where they where they draw the where they draw the line. Uh, one question I have for you is: In is you uh, keep um, Spanish in quotation marks? So, uh, what's the idea there? Why is the Spanish Empire sort of uh, un, uh, something to be questioned? Uh, uh, something to be discussed in in those terms. And please, please tell us. Sure,
1: but let me say something before. Uh about de la cosa juan de la cosa who was the the cartographer of this map de la cosa was a very interesting figure because he was in the second trip uh uh well no he was in the first trip uh, with columbus and by the time he dropped uh he 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 made this map if i'm not wrong he had already five atlantic crossings i mean we're talking about perhaps the most experienced mariner of his time um uh, in this in these waters uh but he was a cosmographer so he could make maps. He was the owner of the Santa Maria, as, as you well mentioned, which was the only ship that didn't come back from the Colombian Colombian enterprise, the first one. Um, but in and as the owner, uh, he had a lot of invested capital in that in that uh, enterprise. So he was this was a rich person. Who was a very knowledgeable person, a scientist of the time. He later on became uh, uh, um, one of the uh, top um, pilots of the of the realm and there was a scientific uh, uh, commission uh, to decide on where the line of uh, of uh, Tordesillas actually lied, and you had uh, people from from uh, Portugal and from Spain, and Juan de la Cosa was one of them. Okay, but the reason I'm putting an emphasis on Juan de la Cosa is that there is a very particular form of knowledge involved here, is that he was both a practitioner of space making, uh, but he was also a scientist of space making, he was a cosmographer at the time. He, you bring those two things together in a simple, single person, which is perhaps the last time it happens when you talk about uh, Piloto Mayor in the in the in the, in the Spanish, Spanish realm. It's very interesting because the kind of knowledge that goes into that is very different from the kind of knowledge that goes, say, into a, a Mercator's maps of the end of the century, or 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 or, or maps. Uh, these people didn't travel. They didn't travel much. Mercator. Um, uh, was never at sea, for example. His sources of knowledge, uh, of information, sorry, came from uh, uh, narratives and, and uh, maps that they would, uh, he would receive and correspondence with people and so on. But De La Cosa here had mapped some of those waters. So that's quite interesting to say there. Okay, the, 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 well, the question? Well, um, may
0: I say, I think he's a very romantic figure because you think of the investors as sort of rich guys living comfortably back in the metropole and trying to get rich. And you think of the explorers as sort of these... Desperados from uh, Extremadura or somewhere trying to trying to get rich quick, you know, and taking rolling the dice for great profits. And here's one who not only could comfortably live at home, but was just was deeply interested in, in the adventure before him.
1: That's right and there's so much myth around this idea of the conquistadores and, the, and those strips of discovery that they were funded by the queen the, the 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 queen jewels that had to be sold in order to do this and so on but that's really myth i mean what uh, one of the one of the roles of the of the of the master of the ship the maestre of the ship who was the second in command uh, sorry uh yeah the second in command uh, after the captain was that he had to own the ship or part of the ship in order to be there. These were private enterprises. Each ship was a private enterprise, which is very interesting because they needed the royal patronage in order that to claim uh, uh, property or, or claim uh, sovereignty, as we call it these days, over the territories that they came onto. Uh, if they were uh, if they didn't have royal patronage, they, they they had no sovereign to support their claim but the sovereign was not putting much of the money these were private enterprises with the hope that they would actually re- remember they were trying to reach uh, the 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 uh, especieria, the islands of the of the spices because there were those were enormous sources of wealth so yeah very quixotic very adventurous and so on but these were business people they wanted money right now the other thing that is interesting there but okay i'm getting off track is that uh, They they always tell us this was about the greed of gold. Well, they were not looking for gold to begin with. They were looking for spices. (laughs) This is what they were after to begin with. But then they started finding gold. And that, of course, became uh, uh, part of the big legend, right? But so many guests failed behind that. Yeah.
0: So why no Spain the way we understand it today? Right.
1: Uh, it's, it's difficult to speak about a Spanish empire as such. We talk about a Hispanic monarchy, for example. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, a uh, uh, Hispanic empire, if you wish. Uh, uh, El Imperio Hispanico. Uh, but uh, the thing is that there was no single Spain. There were Spains. And then the, the what we call the king of Spain was the king of... Uh, so, yes, Spain and Naples and, 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 and other territories in Europe and, and, and Flanders and so on, but, um, but we call them the low countries today. Uh, but it was also the king of New Spain, uh, which is uh, the area mostly con- con- uh, compounded of Mexico these days, and it was also the king of the of the of the Virreinato of, uh, de um, the, the, the Costa del Oro, and uh, anyway... All the territories in in what we call the Americas, these were not colonies as such. They only became colonies technically uh, after the Bourbons took over, but uh, when the Habsburgs were ruling, and this was until the end of the 18th 18th century, these were actually kingdoms uh, which shared uh, um, a monarch. Uh, and uh, legally speaking, the, the status of a subject in, I don't know, the, the, the kingdom of uh, Lima, so the Renato de Lima, uh, had the same status of a, a, um, a, a subject in Castile. Uh, at least uh, in terms of uh, under the law and so on and so forth. So this, that's why I put uh, Spain under uh, uh, inverted commas or quotation marks because uh, it's misleading to talk about Spain as a state as we understand it today. It's an anachronism. The, the Spain that we talk of today as a state really comes after the, the Napoleo- Napoleonic inv- invasions. Uh, but before that, we had kingdoms of Spain uh, or of Spains under a single monarch. That, that's why I put it in those terms. What's interesting, though, is that all these cartographic uh, endeavors seek to provide an idea of har- harmony, spatial harmony under a single king. Uh, and it's a king that would control it all. That was, that was the, the idea, the, 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 um, the, the king whose em- in whose empire the sun never sets. Mm-hmm. That was the idea under Philip II.
0: That's because you can add the Philippines. <laughs> well, the Philippines were
1: actually named after him Yeah, uh, because of, uh, yeah, uh, Mandalao and so on, Mindanao.
0: Yeah, so this um, this book emphasizes European empires. Do you think this is distinctly uh, Europe or are you just saying modestly because you've gathered experts on Europe? Or would this be true of other empires, say the Aztecs or the Incas or the uh, Ming uh, explorers in the Indian Ocean or more recently, you know, Japan 100 years ago?
1: It's a very good question because uh, we we know by now uh, quite a bit about different traditions of mapping in the world. Mm. Uh, By far, the European is not the the only one, and it's definitely not, I would say, it's not the richest when you go and look at the Arab traditions of mapping and uh, Chinese and Indian. Uh, And in fact, now there is a bit of a move that starts to uh, uh, recreate what uh, a pre-Hispanic Uh, uh, mapping and navigation was about. It's incredibly rich, but uh, I can say two things about this is that um, um, it's a bit like uh, um, realizing that there's no single way to map the world. Why? Well, because we have different worldviews and ultimately what gets mapped is a worldview, a cosmology. Uh, A cosmology is a relationship between human society and the universe, right? How we understand the world to be, uh, uh, based on where we think we are and in relation to what. So uh, a beautiful story that actually was at the, at the forefront of me getting into all these projects was that uh, I came across uh, narratives of the 16th century or uh, late uh, 15th century where European travelers would claim to be the first moderns uh, because they were exposed to constellations that the ancients were ignorant about, uh, ignorant of. So stars and the different skies and so on and so forth. Now, why would that be so relevant? Of course, because you try to know where you are in relation to things. If those things change, then you say, oh, the order of knowledge that was built upon those cosmologies is changing. So we cannot uh, try to think of it through how the ancients knew the world. We need to start inventing afresh. We need to start discovering Need to start having different ideas of novelty and so on and so forth. So that's that's what's interesting. If when you look at uh, different uh, cartographic traditions, what you find is different cosmologies. Now it's not clearly put as I just said it because they're not distinct. There's always uh, forms of syncretism, uh, uh, mixtures of knowledge, uh, overlapping of knowledge uh, uh, between uh, uh, different people. What we call, I don't know, um, Chinese and Japanese cartography in the 16th century, 17th century, had a a European influence through the the Jesuits, for instance. That's highly documented. But on the other hand, the same Jesuits were actually bringing into the European imaginary different ways of understanding space. So it's, uh, there's no single way of doing that. Now, the idea of uh, empire, I actually am a big champion of saying there's no such thing as an empire in general. Uh, what, we, what we call empire today, we tend to understand in a 19th century fashion, mostly based on the idea of, of the British Empire, which was mostly understood allegedly in forms of the Roman Empire and so on. But those are only forms, those are ideal forms. But these are just spaces of governance, I would call them.
0: Well, I think that they have certainly Charles V uh, deliberately styled himself a Roman emperor, right? With imperio and dominium, uh, right? And so the the, the desire to be a universal monarch, as you just said, um, to rule the whole world, that's not only common to him, but also to the sultan in Istanbul and the Tsar. Tsar, which comes from Caesar, of course, uh, in in Russia, they also wanted to, to rule the world.
1: Now, what's very interesting is that you have a very relatively poor group of people in a relatively poor part of the world and actually a highly poor part of the world, which is what we call Europe. Uh, which if you compare in the the 16th century with uh, with the Indian Ocean uh, 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 nations and and Asian uh, nations and so on, is actually highly insignificant. The Chinese had not much interest to trade with Europeans. And yet it is these people, take the Portuguese, for example, very small country, small population, and the Spanish, who end up imposing a particular understanding of spatiality around the globe in a period of 50 years. This is incredibly interesting for me. Uh, and then you start globalizing an understanding of empire. I mean, you're right to say that uh, uh, Charles uh, the, the Fifth as the Holy Roman Emperor uh, uh, had this in, in his in his in his title. And you see it in the, the coat of arms of Spain, still with the Eagles and so on. Uh, but that's a particular idea of empire that we tend to understand as universalizing. But there were different forms of empires, the Safavid Empire, for instance, the Ethiopian Empire, which take completely different shapes and forms. No?
0: Yes, yes. Okay, so um, there's there's other essays here. Uh, what are some things that you learned from your your collaborators, and that you were most delighted or or surprised surprised to learn? From I'll just say that I was amazed by Greenland and Denmark, which I. Upon reflection, I realized that's still a possession of the Queen of Denmark to this very day, and perhaps the largest uh, remaining empire of the style in the year 2021. And when uh, Mr. Trump tried to buy it, they they weren't they were not interested. And I, I admit that Mr. Trump's a bit of a buffoon, and but but they love they love that empire. Yeah, yeah. Well, I,
1: I love this question because I learned so much and I keep on learning from these different chapters and I learned enormously from uh, interacting with uh, with my colleagues here, uh, my dear fellows. Um, let's say there are a couple of things that really fascinate me here in the general, in the abstract level, is that different forms of uh, uh, all these different maps that they were using for the empires they were looking at uh, denote different political economies of space. Uh, a, a political economy is basically deciding what is what, who gets what, under which terms, uh, uh, when, and how, right? And uh, spatial ordering is all about that, it's about the distribution of what is and who is to get it and who is going to access it in a particular way and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, the the chapters uh, uh, span from the 16th century to the 21st century. And I keep on seeing this political economies of space in different imperial forms of mapping or aspirations to empire taking place there. One element that I find here is that there are different ethics of space here. Let me say what I understand here by ethics in a, in a very Heideggerian mode. Uh, an ethic here is a, is a way of being in the world, right? A particular way of being in the world. It has to do with what we understand to be valuable, worth protecting, uh, worth promoting, and so on and so forth. And you see that in the maps. Whenever you put a monster in the water, uh, you're trying to send a message there. Whenever you put a monk or you put, uh, I don't know, as you see in some of the 16th century maps in South America, you see a couple of people making a barbecue with other people, right? They're <laughs> eating them up and boiling them and all kinds of... Well, the, you put in that for a reason, right? You are expressing a particular value system uh, there. And I see that in all the maps that that we covered. But the third element, which I find fascinating, here I'm getting a bit into the history of science and technology, is that this space or the spaces of governance that are uh, uh, rendered as governable through maps uh, are the result of various practices, some of which are very technical practices. For instance, taking the the altitude of uh, of the sun, uh, at midday, or taking the, 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 the position of the North Star at night uh, with, the, with the cross staff. And you do that systematically, and you start creating tables, and you start charting, literally charting uh, uh, waters, which you plot on a map, and then there's no such thing as empty space in the seas, but these are coordinated spaces. And I use the term intently here. Because we talk about coordinates, right? Geographical coordinates. So, what is it they do? Well, they coordinate space, right? For what? To govern. To uh, establish routes for transit, uh, uh, to, for trade, mostly in this case, but also evangelization. We should not forget that it did matter for many people, and uh, and uh, the expansion of of, of uh, polities and, and so on and so forth. So what we end up have here and end up having here is a highly technologi- technologized practice of space making, which has sovereign, religious, and commercial dimensions and I see that in each one of the chapters of the book. So I would I would say I've learned deeply about those three things mostly.
0: Uh, well, I know we, we should probably end but I just want to ask you about the ocean sea in the middle of this map we've been talking about it says Maro Mar Oceanus or Oceanus and I know that Columbus was the admiral of the ocean Sea. How did this this is a great name and you mentioned the Atlantic but I'd like to know when that when that started, and how we understand the ocean sea and how we understand the Atlantic ocean. Well, for
1: the classics and all the way up to the, to the mid uh, uh, 15th century, the end of the world was pretty much the Canary Islands. That's where it all ended Uh, in the, the, the pillars of Hercules and and, uh, in the, in, in the Strait of Gibraltar. uh, That was the, the entrance to the unknown, right? That was the oceanum, the mad oceanum. And what happened thereafter uh, was a big incognito. And they would say, well, you just disappear. It's not this idea that the world was flat. That's, that's absolutely a uh, uh, mis- uh, misunderstanding. It was always known, at least since uh, Greek times, that the world was a globe. But we just didn't know what was out there. And what would happen? And there was this idea of the tropics. If you went to the tropics, beyond the tropics, uh, it would be too hot or too cold and life would not be possible. It would pretty much evaporate if you got to the equator and so on and so forth. Uh, so this was a label used for that big body of water that nobody knew anything about. In principle and theoretically, you could connect Asia with Europe by uh, Traversing those waters. Now, the reason why it wasn't done before it was mainly, but well, lots of reasons. But one was a technological one. Uh, we didn't have the technology to sail against the the the, the wind, and the wind systems were unknown. Uh, we simply didn't know how to foster the elements in order to propel ourselves to get to a particular place. Uh, and the, the ocean was that. But you mentioned uh, Columbus with the term admiral. It's only recently that I came to understand what the, what, what the role, the, the, the status of the admiral was. An admiral for us in, in today's stand times is the highest ranking officer in a, in a, in a fleet, in a, in, a, in a navy, right? Or one of the highest rankings. But this was a second degree in the Spanish uh, imaginary at the time. You would have the grand capital then, the gran capitán on top of it. This was not the very top, as many people believe. This was actually put underneath the crown. He was not—he uh, was a, a, a servant of the crown—and it was quite clearly stated by giving him that title. So it was a way of the kings of Spain, the Catholic king, saying, "Whatever you get is, of course, under under our patronage." and you are a subject, a vassal of our, our, our own authority, right? So the idea of the mar Oceano with the Admiral of the, of the, of the mar Oceano was that you're immediately making a claim that whatever is going to be found, that belongs to this sovereign uh, realm.
0: Is it also that the sea... The mar is something that you can cross comfortably, as in the Mediterranean, and the o- Oceanus is this river that circles the known world that nobody dares cross. And if you put those together, you've, you've crossed the uncrossable.
1: I think you're right. And you get to understand that uh, when we explore the, the, the label of the Mar Caribe, or the Caribbean Sea, which is actually an American uh, invention from the 19th century, for the Spanish, there was no such thing as Mar Caribe or Caribbean Sea. There was a mar-oceano, a mar-oceano, which was basically a massive lake that you could cross to get to places. And uh, um, uh, met, uh, sorry, uh, um, the metaphor used here was uh, that of the Mediterranean, the mare nostrum, right? And this was the mar-oceano, uh, which had to be divided between the Portuguese and the Spanish, uh, of course, the different uh, uh, empires would put the line in different lines in different places, but this was right. You call it a mar, a, a, a sea, that means a, a transit space. It was not the end of the world. It was not beyond the world. This was transitable. It's just that we didn't figure out yet how to do it. And that's what these people did.
0: And what about Atlantic?
1: Ah, well, that's another story, but I would have to speak very
0: long about that. So I'll I'll
1: leave it for the next time. We'll leave it
0: for next time. Okay, so... When we talk about navigation. (laughs) Perfect. That will be the perfect uh, transition. When shall we talk? Would that be in one year, do you think? Or two years? What do you think? I hope so. We're negotiating with the publisher now. We're
1: having a couple of workshops now in January to discuss work in progress. And we hope to be writing the book in the first semester of the coming year. Uh, with probably a publication for 2023 or okay. 2023. That's 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 the goal.
0: That's fantastic. Well, again, for our listeners, the book is riveting. Each of these essays is is a, a delight to read, and anyone who wants to look closely at the pictures will find them immediately uh, on online. And thank you, uh, Luis Lobo Guerrero, for your time. Let me just
1: say something before we yeah. close: is that I feel a little bit bad in the sense that, uh, of course, these two books are edited volumes. Um, and uh, I'm speaking, and of course, I speak about what I wrote and what I am very passionate about and so on. But I really want to emphasize that this is a joint endeavor between the editorial teams. Uh, so I don't want to claim a uh, protagonism that I don't have. Um, <laughs> that's very important <laughs> to be said.
0: Very fair, very fair, thank you. and, and uh, inter- you' speaking with you has introduced me to the scholarship of, of your collaborators and <laughs> wonderful um, That's yes. the idea. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you, Christoph. It's really a ple- pleasure to talk about this kind of things.